Good morning. This morning's message is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by, our righteous, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to all, to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious, precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform, to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in, the, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. It is great to be back here in Tapestry Community Church. Uh, I feel like Perry and Hexen, Jason, oh, sort of my children. I have to check up on them ever so often, you know. <laughs> I, must, I must admit, uh, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Very snappy. <laughs> Natalie, you, you, I, thought, I thought it was uh, not country words. What, what do you call it? I think you call it uh, bluegrass. It, sound, it sounded very much so like it. It's great, though. I really enjoyed it. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The title for my message this morning is Peter's Last Message to the Church. My father-in-law, who is the president of a small bank in Missouri, told me one time the difference how to determine a counterfeit currency, counterfeit bill. He said the real key to, to discovering counterfeit currency is not so much to be studying what counterfeits are like, but rather to know what true t legal tender is. The better acquainted you are with real money, it'd be easier to spot the fake. Now that principle is true in the Christian life. The more you know of Jesus Christ, the closer your walk with him is, you'll be much more equipped to be able to spot all the falsehood that is out there. And there is a lot of falsehood. Second Peter is a book that, try, that 
where the apostle is helping us navigate the perils of the Christian life as we make our journey in this world to the new heavens and to the new earth that he mentions in chapter 3, verse 11. First Peter was written to encourage believers who were facing persecution from the world, a world that's under the influence and power and dominion of the devil, persecutes the people of God. Second Peter, however, focuses on domestic enemies who rise up within the church seeking to overthrow the gospel and to lead Christians astray by heretical teachings. The heretical teaching of this book is set forth in chapter 3, verse 4, where the heretics say, where is the promise of his coming, his parousia in the Greek? So there is a denial that Jesus Christ will come again in power and glory. And if you deny the coming, a second coming of Jesus Christ, you will also deny the last judgment. And if you deny the last judgment that you'll never stand before God and give an account for your life, then how do you think you will live this life? You'll live according to what these false teachers, were, how they were living. They were living in sexual immorality, denying the authority of God, chapter uh, 2.1, uh, immorality, 2.10, 14, drunken revelry, 2.13, greed and seeking greed and wrongful game, 2.14 and 15. In a society out there which presses in upon us, which calls upon us um, to compromise our faith, uh, if you don't agree with the views of the powers that be, you will be considered uh, a, a purveyor, a peddler of disinformation. You'll be some sort of uh, seditionist who um, does not love uh, d- democracy. By the way, you will, unless you know, you will be a racist for sure. And so all of these things that they pile upon us try to make us conform to their way of thinking. And if we don't conform to their way of thinking, well, they're going to silence us. And so in the church, you have the tendency to compromise, to not feel like an outsider, to be accepted by the world. And, uh, and Peter wants us to know that Jesus has not left his church here in this world to make people feel good okay, about themselves. That's not what we're here for. He's left us in this world to proclaim the gospel, to go forth, to set forth the truth of the gospel, to call men and women to repentance, call them to faith in Jesus Christ. And when the world pressures us to say we have to compromise, we must be excessively tolerant in order to to get along, uh, to to have a, a place in the public square, we must stand up in light of Second Peter, and say, no, regardless of what you say, we will follow Christ, we will conform our lives, our teachings to him and to the scriptures. So Second Peter is, is a very important book, and Christians need to study it, uh, and we only, if we neglect it, we neglect it to our own detriment, actually. Uh, 
the book begins with, uh, as normal, uh, as all other epistles in the New Testament, the author begins by identifying himself. He'll state something about his recipients. Then he'll offer a greeting, a blessing, a prayer, something along these lines. Now, our author begins, uh, not Simon, Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, immediately we see something different, and I almost stumbled over it to begin with. The name that is being used here is the Hebraic name for Simon. Simon is Greek. Uh, Simeon is Hebrew. And he's using his old name, you will, uh, to the begin to, as, as identifying himself. Now, the only other time this word was used, Simeon, with respect to, to Peter, was in Acts chapter 15 and uh, that situation where the early church gathered together in a conference to settle the issue of whether or not Gentiles can be accepted into the church by faith in Christ alone, apart from Jewish circumcision. In other words, they could be Christians simply through faith. They don't have to become Jews first. Now, in bearing testimony to these truths, the half-brother of our Lord, James, he called upon Simeon Peter. He uses his name Simeon to bear testimony, and he did. Now, he also, we, he's also not only called Simeon, but he's also called Peter. Now, that name comes to him from the Lord Jesus Christ. When, uh, Christ, when, when with the other disciples, Peter publicly confessed to everyone that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him by saying, your name is now Peter, because on the basis of this conf- his confession, I take it, is what he's saying, he will build his church. So Peter, meaning rock, and he identifies to us uh, exactly his credentials. He is a servant. The word servant there literally means doulos, a slave. A slave. He's owned body and soul, mind and spirit by Christ. He's owned because he was purchased, as he says in First Peter chapter 1, not with silver or gold, but he was purchased by the precious blood of Christ. Christ bought him. He is not his own. He belongs to Christ. He is the representative of Christ. He will speak for Christ. He will serve Christ. By the way, that's true of all of us who are Christians. We are blood-bought slaves of Christ. And our, and our duty and our obligation is to do his will in the earth. And not only, and by the way, the, uh, the word slave, although it sounds terrible to us because of the past history in America, actually is also a term of honor because that same concept is used in the Old Testament of who? Moses. It's used of King David. It's used of the prophets. So there's a, a great honor. And what greater honor could be given to a human being to be a servant to proclaim the truth and live for Jesus Christ in the world. And so he is a slave. He is a servant, a blood-bought servant of Christ, and he is an apostle. Now, the term apostle, apostolos, can be used in numerous numerous ways uh, in the New Testament. This is a general use of it of where uh, it simply means something like a messenger sent out from the church. It's used of 
Titus that way. It's used of Epaphrodites. These are messengers from a church sent out to another church or sent out to another person to help them, to serve them. And so that is a, a general usage of the term. We do have such things as apostles of the churches, meaning messengers or missionaries. We prayed for a missionary this morning. Missionaries that the church sends out to represent Christ and to proclaim the gospel to people who have, who have not heard uh, of Christ. So that's one of the, one of the usage of the, of the term. But the principal use of the term, uh, at least in this context, uh, is its technical meaning. One who has been specifically chosen by Christ to be his authoritative witness, spokesman, and representative in the world. And that is who Peter is. Now, not only is this, with this introduction do we see this with him, but we also see uh, that he tells us that he was an eyewitness of Jesus' transfiguration in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Uh, by the way, the concept of transfiguration is an, an enacted prophecy. For there, the, the divinity of Christ, which was veiled in humanity, is pulled back, and we see his, his true identity, his, the true glory of Jesus Christ, his, his oneness with the Father. And that's exactly what will be seen when Christ comes again. We'll see him as he truly, truly is. Now, so, so he, he, he identifies himself as one who had these wonderful experiences with Christ. And not only that, but he will also say in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, that he's very much acquainted with the Apostle Paul. Now, despite these heavy claims of Petron authorship, both ancient, uh, even reformational, and modern scholarship has questioned the authenticity of this authorship from being the Apostle Peter. Now, I don't want to go into all the details on this. There's a lot of details on this. Uh, but one of the, just give you the, one of the major uh, ones, problems, uh, which is quite obvious of anybody who can, who can read, handle the uh, New Testament Greek, is that there's a, the language, the vocabulary, the sen sentence structure, the syntax in 2 Peter is greatly different than what you find in First Peter, and this has always given people difficulty. How could uh, the author of Second Peter be also the author of First Peter? There must be some differences there. And we do know uh, that in the early church, there were all sorts of uh, books that were being peddled out there that were false, what we call pseudonymous, that is, the false, falsely claiming to be of Peter, saying that he is the author when he really wasn't the author. We have all sorts of thieves, uh, books such as the Gospel of Peter, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Travels of Peter, and so forth like this, that was in the early church, spread in the early church, and the early church knew that this was not written by Peter. And so they become very, very, very hesitant uh, whenever they have literature that says it's authored by Peter. Just let's make sure that it's really from Peter. And uh, the the... the the Greek vocabulary, sentence structure, and so forth is much different than uh, 1 Peter, and then we have all this false stuff out there, and it causes people to be hesitant about it. And that was the case in the early church, the early uh, listings of the, which was considered to be canonical scriptures, uh, Peter was often missing, but that's not unusual. Hebrews was missing as well. Uh, 
And even the church historian um, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea in his book, The Ecclesiastical History of the Church, I didn't, uh, going through the historical activities of the church from time of Jesus up to the, the Council of Nicaea in 325 uh, A.D., uh, said, well, this book, we're not really sure. We're going to put it in the disputed category. So none of this was, was, was odd, okay? This was normal. It took the church a lot of study, a lot of time, and a lot of prayer to determine the reality of all these books. What really is canonical scripture? And it was determined on the basis of apostolic authority. Was it apostles and apostle written by an apostle, number one? And number two, did it bear the witness of the Holy Spirit? When you read it, is there something greatly different in this text, in this writing, than is what our normal writing is out there? This comes from God, and it's obvious. And for those reasons, uh, finally, it was determined that Second Peter is of the same author as First Peter. Now, the differences in, in the language, in the vocabulary, syntax of the sentence structure is due to, I think, what uh, Jerome told us in the 4th century is that First Peter tells us that he used a secretary. Sylvanus, he says, Sylvanus, my brother, I write these things to, uh, to you. Then chapter 5, verse 12 of First Peter. And that's, that was very normal. Most of the writings of the apostles were using secretaries. They would dictate it, and a, and a person who's very good in writing would act as a scribe in writing down. Now, Second Peter doesn't have that. <laughs> and, and so it's rough. Uh, it's different. It, it's, a, it's a Greek that's more Asiatic than the, than the more classical Greek that, that, that came from Greece. And I think the difference is due to the fact of, one, he's using a secretary in First Peter and Second Peter. He's not probably Second Peter, written for Rome around the year 65 A.D., where he, when he realized he will soon die, the Nero, uh, the emperor of Rome, is a madman. <laughs> he's burned out Rome, and he's going to blame it on all the Christians, and a severe persecution will come, and... Paul will lose his life, Peter will lose his life, and Peter senses this, and probably he writes this himself. And so that's the reason why it's so difficult, the grammar, and it's so rough, and the vocabulary is somewhat different than we find in 1 Peter. So regardless of the difficulties uh, with authorship, and there are difficulties, they have to be admitted, nonetheless, it will not overthrow the, it's not compelling enough to overthrow the Decision of the church historically that this is divine. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and Peter himself is its author. Knows that. Let's move on. Okay, I just had to cover that and just not skip it in case anybody has ever uh, had taken a survey of the New Testament in college and all these com uh, disagreements will rise up against the scriptures. But anyway, uh, he says. He's uh, Simeon, that is the old fisherman, and now drawing attention what he was in the past and who he is now, Peter, the apostle and servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, he does not specify exactly who the recipients of this letter happens to be. However, we do hear uh, in chapter 3, that he says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. Ah, 
So the first letter says he wrote it to people living in Galatia, Pontus, Bithynia, and so forth. That is regions of northern, modern, northern day Turkey and central Turkey. And he also says this is the second letter, so he's probably writing to the same folks. And uh, he says that, uh, that Paul has written to them before. They had his letter, and we know that Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians. So it's probably the same folks in northern and central uh, Turkey. So he's writing to Gentiles. These are not Jewish believers, but Gentile believers. Now, to these folks, it says, you have obtained a f- uh, faith of equal standing with ours. Now, interesting little word here, obtained. The word in the Greek actually means to receive by lot. Receive by lot. We know what the lot is from the Old Testament. The lot was the way of determining the will of God in certain matters. The, the, the tribal inheritance, when they entered the promised land by Joshua, uh, was determined by casting of lots. Okay? Uh, determination whether to go to war and fight various Canaanites and Philistines and so forth. Ask God, should we go to war or not? We go to the high priest, he has cast the lot. The lot says either yea or nay to do. Um, the early sections of the New Testament we find uh, in Luke, for example, chapter 1, uh, the, the Levitical priesthood, their service in the temple of Jerusalem is determined by the casting of lots. When is it your turn to serve in the temple? Uh, they cast the lots to find out. Whenever... Um, uh, uh, Judas committed suicide. The, the, the apostles felt a great need to replace him. How did they de- determine to replace him? Ask God by casting on, and the lot falls upon Matthias, Acts chapter 1. Now what this, and, in, and then in the great statement in Proverbs, the Old Testament, Proverbs 16, I believe it's 33, says, the lot is cast into the lap and its every decision is of the Lord. It's all turns up. And so this is, a, this is a declaration of divine sovereignty. It's not so clear in, in, the, in the English, but that's exactly what's behind the Greek. You have obtained by divine lot, by divine gift, if you will, a faith of equal standing. So why is that? Why is that? Well, because by nature, human beings are sinners, Okay. Sinners, and sinners do not like God. We're, we're, stand, we're dead in our trespasses and sins by nature. We're hostile to the things of God. We're in enmity with God, it says in Romans chapter 8. We're lovers of self. We are, and we're going to do what self wants to do. We're not lovers of Christ, of God, of God. And when the gospel calls upon us to acknowledge our sin, to repent of our sin, we say, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And so we're totally opposed to it by nature. And therefore, if we're going to be redeemed, we have to have a sovereign work of God in the heart to enable a person to repent and believe. And that sovereign work is the gift of the Spirit, as Jesus teaches us in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John with Nicodemus. The flesh profits nothing, it is the Spirit that gives life. And the Spirit is like the wind, it blows to whomever it will. That, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so the gift of the Spirit is what enables a person to repent and to believe. So 
It has, the Lord has given to these Gentiles a faith born of the Spirit of God that is of equal standing to, to ours, he says. Now, there was some question as to what does he mean to ours. He's talking about uh, the apostles themselves. Is the, is the faith of these Gentiles uh, comparable with the apostles of the Lord Jesus? That's possible. Probably, probably what he's thinking about is that the faith of the Gentiles is comparable of equal value, of equal honor, for that's what the term means, with the, with the Jewish believers. Because in the early church, that was the big problem. How do you accept Gentiles, to whom the promises were not given, into the church of Jesus Christ, which is made of, begin, at the beginning, all of Jewish believers? And so there's a great debate with this. And what he's trying to tell us is that the gospel, the gospel answers, breaks down all these barriers between people. Ephesians chapter 2 uh, the, the gospel has broken down the separation between Jew and Gentile. We're, we are all of equal faith, have a, having an equal standing. There are no second-class Christians in the church, none whatsoever. We're all saved the same way. We're all directed to live the same way. We all have the same promised inheritance. There is no difference. And by the way, the gospel is the solution to all our social problems that are out there in this country. That's the problem, is that we've ignored the gospel. So, we have a faith, they've obtained a faith equal with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The term righteousness means that which conforms to a standard. The standard of God is the law of God. Righteous behavior is that which conforms to the standard. And, and, and so he's saying here, the gift of God, the God's saving grace that produces faith is in harmony with the standard of righteousness. Uh, it is not contrary to it. God is not showing some sort of prejudice. No, Christ Jesus suffered, bled, and died paying the penalty of sin. And that's in complete harmonies with the gospel of grace and mercy. So it's come to us by means of the standards of righteousness of our God and Savior. That's very little, very important. Just look at it in the English text, of our God and Savior. Notice it has one little article, the the, it's translated for us, the of here. And it's holding together two nouns. What's the noun? God and Savior. And who is that? That's Jesus Christ. So anytime you see something like that, the, the two things, are, the two nouns hold by, held together by one article are not saying there's two different people here I'm talking about. We're talking about the same person. This is an obvious declaration in the Bible of the full, complete divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is none other than God, the Son, who is incarnated. He is God the Son. And he says, he, now he gives a little blessing, verse 12. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in the second statement, notice that we have two ofs, two articles, noticing the distinction between of God, that's one, and the 
Lord Jesus Christ. So there we see hints of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son. The Holy Spirit's not much, but he's implied within all of that. Now, grace to you and peace, grace, the unmerited favor, the undeserved mercies of God here to us, and the peace with God that flows out of the grace that he's given to us. He says hey, he wants that to be multiplied. He wants that to be overflowing within our life. How? In the knowledge of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this little phrase, knowledge, is, is, is a big term uh, here in the second epistle of Peter. It is used numerous times. It's used here in verse 2. It's, uh, it's used in verse 3. It's used in verse 8. It's used in 2, chapter 20, and it's used uh, in a non-compound form. Here, it's used in a compound form, epigenosis, meaning an intense knowledge, a knowledge of an, that clearly comes through conversion is what, what, what he's talking about. But it's used in a non-intense form, gnosis, in 1, 5, 6, 3, and 18. Now, the very fact that it's used here at the beginning, what, what he desires is, is we have grace and peace multiplied in our life and go to the very last verses of the book, verse 18 of chapter 3. He says there, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, once it's a grow, multiplied grace and grow, through the knowledge of Christ in the beginning of the book, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the book. What's this book about? These are like uh, two bookends. We call them an inclusio that holds the whole book together and tells us what the theme is. The whole theme of this book is for you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Why does he want you to grow? <laughs> he wants you to grow because there's all sorts of heresies and errors out there. The more you grow and the closer you become to Christ, the more equipped you are to stand faithful and true, to not be led astray by the falsehood, the false doctrines. He's going to talk about false teachers to no end in chapter 2 and 3 and false doctrine that they promote in chapter 3 particularly, false living in 2, false doctrine in chapter 3. Now, what protects you against that is growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it also has all sorts of other benefits for your life as we'll see here now shortly. So that is what he's trying to encourage you to do. The theme is to grow in the grace. And so his last message to the church is this. Be careful to continue in grace, to grow in it, to have it multiplied into your life, to see yourself developing more and more and more progressively into a conformity in your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to exhort us to grow, strive in the knowledge of, of the Lord Jesus. In verse two, uh, 3 and 4, uh, it's difficult to determine. If verse 3 and 4 is a reference to, to, uh, to, the, um, to the introduction, verses 1 and 2, is he trying to tell us the reason for these things? Or is he setting forth the basis for what he will command in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8? following. I take it, he's not giving so much a reason for, for the, the growth in verse uh, 2, but actually setting forth the foundation for which he's going to encourage us, makes commands, imperatival commands in verse 5 and following. So that's the way I'm going to look at this. So he says, now, God has provided things for us. Christ has provided everything we need for 
life, and godliness. The divine en- en- enablement. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, pertaining spiritual life and godliness. Godliness is a piety. It's a, it's a sort of a, a, a world mindset, a world viewpoint where we see everything in light of God. That's how we analyze our life. That's how we analyze all actions. He has given us everything. The power of Christ has given us this. Now, it's very interesting that the word his, a little pronoun his, special uh, grammar, it obviously refers back the nearest antecedent, same sort of genitive construction is found in of Jesus our Lord. So it seems that the divine power here is none other than the power of Jesus, which he has given to us to live our life being conformed more and more and more to his moral character. That's what I think is going on here. And he says it's through the knowledge of him who called us. Now, now I guess the him is still referring to Christ. Now, usually the call, uh, uh, the gospel that overcomes our native opposition, our hard-heartedness to God, generally speaking, is, is attributed to the, to the Father and even to the Spirit. But here, it's attributed directly to Jesus himself. He has called us, is, is the point that it's been made, through the knowledge of him who called us. It's an effectual call. It produces something. What did it produce? It produced the faith. We've obtained it, had been... Or, given, had been ordained to be given to us sovereignly. And we, we actually experience it. We actually repent. We actually believe. We actually experience the things which God has ordained for us to experience. So he's, he called us, the Lord did, to what? What did he call us to? Glory and excellence. Now, where's glory? The next time we will see glory is in the transfiguration, chapter 2, verses uh, 16, 17, and 18, there we see the, the, the honor and the glory bestowed upon Christ. In the transfiguration, we see his majestic nature. So he called us by his domestic nature, his, his own divinity, and he called us by his excellence. Now, that word excellence is talking about his moral uh, godliness, his moral holiness. That is what he called us by. The excellence is a reference to his life and to his death, efforts to righteousness, which he, he has merited and earned for us. That is how he called. So he called us to what? Glory? Where were we in? Chapter 3? <laughs> a new heavens and new earth wherein reigns righteousness. He's coming in glory. And Paul and John says, when he comes in, we will be what? Like him, for we will be conformed to him. We will see him as he is. So he's called us to that because this is what he is. And he's granting, and this is, this is where we're going. Okay. So live in light of what will be is the exhortation by which he's granted to us his precious and great promises. Now, the word promises here is in the plural, so no doubt he's referring to the Old Testament promises. Study the Word of God. You struggle in your life. You fall into the slew of despond, as Bunyan says of his pilgrim. 
the way to get out of the despond is, as Mr. Evangelist said, look at the stones, look at the stones. It helps you to traverse the, the problems in life. And that's true. So the Old Testament promises are a great boon for the Christian life. But I think primarily the promises here are a reference to the promise of his coming. For the, for the heretics are saying, where is, quote, the promise of his coming? Where is this new heavens and new earth? Which, which Christians say, God has promised to us, to which we're looking for. So I think that's what he's referring to here. These great and precious promises are true, and by them, when they're fulfilled completely, what are we? Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped corruption in the world. So it is, it's looking to the end, okay? That's when we ultimately escape the corruption that is in the world. That is ultimately when we're completely, perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, even though that is true, it's basically referencing the, the end. By the way, becoming partakers of divine nature doesn't mean that you're, uh, you'll be divine. What it means is that your character will be conformed completely, perfectly to the Lord Jesus' moral character. That's what he's referring to in all this. But we must remember, since, since he has said that we've obtained a faith and we've obtained a knowledge, it's a referencing to conversion, then there is a sense in which we have already escaped the corruptions of the world through, uh, through desires, through fallen human desires. How we escaped our conversion. We have escaped that. We, there is a sense in which the Christian is totally new. We are justified by Christ's work. We're viewed with equal standing. We're seated with him in the heavenly places, Paul tells us. So we have been delivered. We have escaped in one sense in our conversion, in our salvation, initial salvation, the corruptions of the world. So we are truly saved. We are truly new. We have truly escaped. However, we have not yet totally escaped. Total escape comes when, we, when the Lord returns again. We are completely perfected. No more sin. No more corruption of the, of the body. No more messed up mind, which we all tend to have. And, uh, and we're, we're just we're like Christ ethically and morally. That's when we totally escape. We reign with him forever and ever in the eternal kingdom wherein dwells righteousness, he says in chapter 3, verse 11. Now, he moves quickly to the divine responsibilities, verses 5 through 7. For this reason, before, because you are converted, you've been saved by and you've been saved to glory and excellence, these things. Now, you have responsibilities, and this is your responsibility. This is my responsibility. And none of this, beloved, is optional. The verbs here are imperatives, which means they are a command. He says, make every effort. That means you have to be intentional. That means you have to put yourself to work in this area. You just can't just uh, sleepwalk your way into heaven. That's not what we're doing, okay? Being intentional. Make every effort to add, to add something to your faith, to grow your faith. And how, what are you going to grow your faith? Look at all the virtues, all the, all the moral virtues that fall. This is parallel in many ways 
to what Paul is saying about the fruit of the Spirit. He tells us to keep in step with the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, to walk by the Spirit. And if you walk by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of what? The flesh. It's the same concept that's going on here. He's using other virtues. Multiply. Let this be overflowing in your life. Make every effort. Strain at it. Be diligent at this. To add to faith, the first thing he tells us, to add to your faith is, he says virtue. Now, that word virtue is the same word he talked about Christ. Christ called us by his glory and his excellence. The word excellence, there's the same Greek term as the word virtue. So, it's the excellency. It's the moral nature the moral goodness, the moral greatness and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Add his character. Be quick to be conformed to his character. That's what he's saying here. And to, this, to, to the character of the Lord that we want to see replicated in our, our own life, add knowledge. That is right and wrong, greater insight into what the Scripture is teaching us. It's knowledge not only of the things of God mentally, but it's also relational. Thing, where my relationship with him is a growing relationship. And with this knowledge, add to what he says is self-control. Now, that's what we need when temptation comes upon. We have to, to restrict ourselves, say no to ourselves. By restricting ourselves, then we are better equipped to resist the temptations of the world which come upon us. And then to, to self-control, he says, add steadfastness. Now, steadfastness is what enables us to endure the temptation, endure the, uh, the, the pressures and the problems that come upon us by the world. It's a, it's a word that refers to perseverance, the way to stick with things and continue on, not to just uh, be fly of the night and give things up. Give up, the, give up your view of God, give up your view of church and life with him. Uh, and to steadfastness, add godliness. This is the viewpoint. This is to have a mindset of everything with respect to God. And with godliness, then he says, add brotherly affection. What's about brotherly affection? That is treating, here's referring to the people of the church. Retreat, treating all the people of the church, the saints of the church, as if they were your original Family members. Uh, treat them like you treat your children. Treat them like you treat your husband and wife. Say, better be good to your wife. And she better be good to your husband. That's the idea. Treating lovingly, caringly, concerningly about them. And above all of that, the great capstone there is love. Above all, love. Love everyone, even your enemies, as Jesus told us. Now, why? Why should we do What are the benefits of doing all this? Well, verse Eight, he says, for if these qualities are yours, and they're what? They're increasing. They're there. They're actually true. And you, and you are doing something. They are increasing in your life. They keep you from what? Being ineffective and unfruitful. If you want your life to count, <laughs> you want it to be fruitful in the service of God, pursue these virtues. Pursue godliness. Pursue holiness. And you will be effective. You'll be useful to God in his church and in his kingdom. So these, will, these things, if you're doing this, it will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other, negatively, for those who lack these qualities, those who forget about them, those who ignore them, 
Well, they are blind and nearsighted, he says. Now, it's interesting, the text in the, uh, here in English refers it, refer, reverses it, says we're nearsighted and then blind. How can a person be nearsighted and blind? Well, <laughs> if you're blind, you're, <laughs> how can you say you're nearsighted? Well, I think the problem is what he's trying to say is give us the reason why people are blind to the things of God. People, he's concerned about false teachers who are in the church. That's what he's concerned about. Why is it they blind to the things of God? Because they have forgotten what they've confessed. Well, they've forgotten what they said they believed. What did they say they believed? They said they believed they were, their sins were forgiven, that Christ has died for them, and they had faith. And they exemplified that where? In baptism. Because in baptism... Um, that is that is where in the early church one publicly confessed Christ, publicly identified with Christ, publicly entered the church and said they will follow and be obedient to Christ. Now what they have done is that they have forgotten. They willfully, they have not looked, they have not studied out what they said their confession was, that they've been cleansed, that's what the confession said, that they were cleansed from their former sins, but, but because they have lived an ungodly life, living for themselves, living in the flesh, they prove themselves to be false. That's the point. In verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more dead. But in this light, because there is such a thing as false professions of faith. Not everything that claims to be faith is true saving faith. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. That's our same word, to, expend, to extend every effort that he said in verse 5. Be all the more diligent to make your what? Calling? An election, sure. Election is the sovereign determination of God. Only God knows who him he's chosen. But the calling is the effectual working of the Spirit of God in the heart. And we can understand that. We, how do we know the effectual working of the calling of the God in the heart? The internal witness of the Spirit. Those, all those who know Christ call upon him. They, how they cry out, Abba, Father, in the book of Romans chapter 8. And the other texts of Scripture. So it's internal witness of the Spirit, and that witness is also confirmed by a godly lifestyle, by people who try to walk in the Spirit, people who try to live the virtues, to want to have their life conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So it says, and if these things are in you, you will never fall. Now, what does a fall mean? Fall does not mean you will not sin. Doesn't mean that at all. Doesn't mean you will never buy black side. Doesn't mean that. What it means is that you'll never abandon your faith. You'll never turn away from Christ. You'll never turn away from church. You will never just whole hog go into a licentious lifestyle and forget holiness in the, in the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. They will. You will never fall away. Never apostatize from the Christian faith is the point. And so you'll have assurance. There is security, and verse 11, there is glorification. For, if this, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the turtle kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. There'll be, you will enter heaven. You will be richly rewarded by the grace of God for, a God, for living in a godly lifestyle. Now, maybe let's quickly conclude with all this by saying, an application. God chooses us by His grace. He calls us into spiritual life by His grace. He empowers us to live godly by His grace. He ensures us that we will go to heaven by His grace. Salvation from beginning to end ultimately is the work of the grace of God, not our works. The flesh actually does nothing. However, 
That does not mean that God's grace is a license to live any way you want. Oh, I've been forgiven. I've been justified. It doesn't matter. It does matter. If you've been declared righteous, if you have the Spirit of God in your heart, what's the outcome? What's the results of all that? The result is a heart that loves the Lord, that wants to serve the Lord, that gives itself to obedience to God. And when it sins it's against God, it's very upset and it repents and turns from it and asks for help. That is the point. Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians uh, 2, 12. Why? Why should we work out? Why should we live on it? Because it is God who is at work in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, to live godly, to live holiness. And remember, the, the warning of Hebrews, without holiness, no one, no one will see the Lord. There has to be not only a declarative, imputed righteousness of Christ given. There has to be some sort of practical fruit of that, that that's real and that's true in my life. There is a measure of it here. Otherwise, we're false. And that's his message to us. So, encouragement is this. Let us all, let Joe, let you, let us all, let Hexham, let every one of us grow more today, tomorrow, continually, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. May he, may he richly, richly bless your life and encourage you to continue in your service and walk for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glories of your word. It is wonderful. You tell us how we are saved by the matchless and incomparable grace of God. And at the same time, we're not robots. It changes our heart and it changes our lives. And the great fruit of that is we love you. As Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so we will desire to keep your commands. We confess our many, many failures, but at the heart, at the base of our being, Lord, we want to be pleasing in your sight. Do those things that bring honor and glory to you. And so help us by the work of the Spirit and the work of the Bible and the saints of the church to be conformed more and more day by day to the image of Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray.